This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They always say that you can go to the reservation and get away with murder, and I do believe that's true. It was a husband and a wife that killed my sister. I was asking around, have you seen Hannah? Have you seen Hannah? We were supposed to go explore the world together. But instead, I'm exploring the woods for my sister. And then there was stories about human trafficking, that they sold my daughter. My child was murdered, chopped up, put in a suitcase. There is a Ashley on every reservation. The cops told me she's probably out having fun, drinking, scared to come back home. It was like we were pretty much doing what the investigator should have been doing. We'd be have a different rea- reaction if this was non-native. I'm just telling you, it'd be a different reaction. But I want to make it clear to you, we, in fact, have to change our attitude, the country's attitude toward tribal nations. What comes with the oil? A man camp. What comes with the man camp? human trafficking. Do I believe that there's a connection between the rape of the earth and the rape of women? Oh, you better believe I do. This is a worldwide crisis. This isn't just North America. Women and and girls are victims all over the world. MS-13 is the gang that um, our tribal law and order has talked about. Hispanic gangs, Sereños, and even Mexican Mafia uh, most definitely are operating involved in drug activity in Missoula and on the Flathead Indian Reservation. I first met with uh, BIA. I met with him once, and then he said he couldn't help because he was going to a trip to Vegas and not to call him. We need to demand an immediate investigation into why the law enforcement has failed. And what are they thinking? And I'm not going to say anything? That I'm going to let them get away with it? No! Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, the clip you heard is from a film directed by Rain called Somebody's Daughter, a documentary about murdered and missing Indigenous women. Did you know that in 2016 alone, over 5,700 Indigenous women and girls went missing or were murdered? That's 15 women every day. And in the time that you listened to that clip, another girl or woman would have been murdered or gone missing, or possibly both. In stark contrast, 22-year-old Gabby Petito was reported missing on September 11, 2021 by her mother. Following a resource-intensive search, on September 29, Gabby's remains were found in Grant Teton National Park, Wyoming, where she'd been camping with her fiancé Brian Laundrie when she disappeared. Now, we all heard about Gabby, and quite right too. But we didn't hear about the 710 Indigenous people who went missing in Wyoming a decade before Gabby. Their disappearances drew little, if any, attention in the news or on social media. And I want to change that, and I want to get word out, and you can help me. So if you haven't done so already, please listen to my previous episode with Lonnie Coombs, and now this important conversation with Cara Chambers and Dr. Emily Grant, who both work on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Task Force in Wyoming. So let's get into it. And as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi, Cara and Emily. I'm really excited to have you both here on Crime Analyst. And I know all, but well, all of our time's precious. So let's dive right in. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Let's start with Cara. Yes. Well, thank you. My name is Cara Chambers and I am with the Wyoming Attorney General's Office and I chair our governor's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Task Force. Excellent. Thank you. And Emily? 
I'm Dr. Emily Grant. I'm a senior research scientist at the University of Wyoming, and I led the um, research report for the task force in Wyoming. Excellent. Dr. Emily Grant. Yes, we must remember titles that have been earned. And it's yes. wonderful to have you both on here. So why don't you tell my listeners how you got involved with the task force and how you got involved with the work? I think they'd be really interested to hear that. Uh, for me, what happened is in 2019, uh, you know, part of my role as the director of the Division of Victim Services is we attend various awareness events across our state. Uh, in support of various victims' issues. And in April of 2019, myself and, and others were invited to a event at our University of Wyoming for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And at that event, there were a handful of speakers, and one of them, who was an uh, Indigenous activist by the name of Lynette Grable, actually spoke and in attendance was our governor, our state's fairly newly elected governor at the time. And she asked, if the governor would be interested in looking into the plight of missing and murdered indigenous people in our state and he on the spot agreed to. And that's really what got it started. I was sort of involved because, you know, immediately his policy people, you know, looked at me and said, well, you know, Kara, you've, you've administered this human trafficking task force, which is actually how Emily and I first met. And we could talk about that a little bit because we do think there's a lot of interplay between the two. But anyway, yeah, so we we established the Governor's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Task Force in July of 2019 and held meetings here in the capital of Cheyenne. And then we had one on our reservation to sort of gauge the interest of families and people. And it was just absolutely overwhelming. I joke that this was pre-COVID because we had way too many people in a very small room. But I think that was that light bulb moment for those of us that, okay, this is this is big. Um, and there are a lot of families in this room who have loved ones who've been missing, you know, 20, 30 years who don't have resolutions or have family members who went missing and were found deceased and aren't satisfied with sort of the answers that they got. But that was really the impetus. That's when it got started in 2019 and very quickly realized that we didn't know what we didn't know. Uh, we didn't have any data. We didn't have numbers. We didn't have accurate stats. We didn't even know who could or should be collecting that. And so that's where Dr. Grant comes in. Having had that prior relationship with her, doing work on human trafficking and, and compiling data. And that's what the Wyoming Survey and Analysis Center does. So I'll let her take it from there and how she got involved. Yes. So um, I'm a community psychologist. So what that means is I look at factors in the community that are contributing to people's well-being or like negatively or positively, right? So that can take a lot of different forms. Kara mentioned that we first worked together with the Human Trafficking Task Force. And so that was a, another time where we were like, where's the data on that? <laughs> and uh, we embarked on, you know, using multiple methods to try to capture what is going on in the state, what is known about the problem, what are some areas that we can work on. And when the Missing and Murder Task Force came to be, you know, we already know that there is an intersection between human trafficking and uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And it's another similar situation of where's data on this? Um, how do you capture it? You know, we've heard from a lot of families that these aren't reported. There isn't just an easy place that you can go query. So this issue has affected uh, my life personally. So I was very excited to be part of this and up for the challenge of trying to um, explain what this looks like in Wyoming. Excellent. Thank you both for explaining the history. And I think, Cara, the lesson there for your governor and certainly being asked that question and for everybody else is if you don't ask, you don't get. And sometimes people surprise you and say, yes, you know, let's do this. Absolutely. And good for her. Good for Lynette taking that opportunity. She saw he was in the room and engaged and yeah, good things have happened. And and it, it really does distill to that one event and that one ask. So that's absolutely right. Excellent. And I think it's quite interesting because one thing that I didn't realize was that Operation Lady Justice came in in 2019 as a presidential task force. And can you just say a little bit just about the history nationally of what's gone on? And then we're taught locally, because I think a lot of people probably don't realize there was a task force that was set up in 2019, 
Plus, there's a national day of awareness for missing and murdered Native women and girls, which is May 5th. And so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the big picture history, and then we'll go into the your local history and what's going on. Yeah, well, obviously 2019 was a big year for this. And I'd have to go back in my notes, but I, I know that one case that really caught a lot of attention was the, the plight of a 16-year-old out of Montana, Selena Not Afraid, who went missing um, in January of, I, it may have been 2019. Uh, but what, what was happening is these cases were trickling into the media. And it was under the Trump administration, under the Trump White House, that they, uh, they began Operation Lady Justice, which really ended up being a two-year endeavor to engage, you know, the 574 recognized tribal tribes in the United States to, and so what they did is they had a, several tribal consultations regionally across the country at, at various times to sort of gauge what sort of awareness was out there, what uh, individual tribes were doing on this issue, and sort of not dissimilar to what was happening in Wyoming. I mean, and, and Wyoming obviously participated in the Operation Lady Justice because what we found out is, you know, kudos to Wyoming is we were one of the first states to sort of have a dedicated task force to this. Tribes had been doing as on a state level. And let me clarify that, you know, as a governmental entity working for a colonial government, we were sort of one of the first to look at it from that perspective. And then, of course, the White House taking it on from a federal level. Uh, we wanted to know what the tribes were doing and how we could come alongside as a, as allies. And I think that was Operation Lady Justice. I think that was the intent of the state level task forces to to figure out how we could leverage whatever assets we had and ability to assist these tribes in looking at this epidemic amongst their their people. We we know that Native people, especially Native women, are preyed upon at rates far higher. Than, than their white counterparts. But we, I, I kind of, like I said before, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so Operation Lady Justice was really a two-year effort to just get some baseline data out there on, on what tribes were doing and what states were doing. Um, and that's really what the Wyoming task force sort of was doing at the same time. I wouldn't say we piggybacked off one another. It was really just timing-wise serendipitous that we came along at the same time and really fed into each other. So it was, it was really helpful. And that, that effort is ongoing, um, even though we have the Biden administration and, and, uh, you know, it's still Operation Lady Justice in that two year exploratory sense is no longer, but, but the movement uh, certainly under the current administration is moving forward. And May 5th being a very crucial day. I know our state, our governor has, has issued a proclamation for the past two years for May 5th, and we'll continue to do so of raising awareness. And I think those days and those issues and those those governor proclamations and those presidential proclamations are just one more way uh, to engage the public, to, to say, hey, uh, this is an issue. And if you're interested, here's where you go to find out more info. And so, so podcasts like this are so important. And so thank you so much for spotlighting Wyoming's efforts on missing and murdered. It's my pleasure. I mean, I think like lots of people when, and certainly on my other podcast, Royal Crime Profile, we started digging into the Gabby Petito case when she was missing. Then of course we came across, actually, there's lots of women who've gone missing who've never really been spoken about. And then fortunately her father was just so humble and showed such humility of spotlighting other cases and I think that that's the important, one of the key important things coming out of Gabby's case is that people are no, no longer silent about, in particular, you know, people who are Indigenous, who experience violence and abuse at far greater rates than white people and when they go missing and equally when they're murdered. And I was really shocked to find out just the, the US stats that four in five Indigenous people experience violence that's really shocking. And Indigenous women are more likely to experience violence than any other demographic. You know, I talk a lot about violence against women and girls and that four to five women are murdered each day by a current or former male partner. But it's the who. Who is actually... And of course, if you're missing, sometimes you're not necessarily reported missing. So again, it's who gets spotlighted and who the media wants to cover. And I think some of the other shocking big picture statistics, which really should anger and upset most people into action, is that 
Equally, those that are being violent and abusive were the perpetrators and not indigenous. Um, in fact, 97% of those cases where it's a female victim, it's not an indigenous perpetrator. And 90% of men who are abused, it's not an indigenous perpetrator. So again, who's doing what to whom is something we really have to dig into. One in three indigenous women experience sexual abuse in their lifetime. I mean, that's really shocking. And 94% you know, their current or former partner are abusive to them. So once we start to layer in the what I call the macro, the big picture statistics, and understand that grassroots campaigners have been pushing for this awareness for some time, I think it was in 2015, wasn't it? There was a key female campaigner, Melinda Harris Limberland, who after her daughter, Hannah Harris, was found missing and murdered in 2013, she elevated the issue. So we've had incredible women actually doing this work and ensuring that their daughters, their sisters are not forgotten. And then, of course, you've got the various task force that have come in. So I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. In fact, if Dr. Emily wants to say anything about stats, because um, I definitely want to talk about the report. And I, th I know you're a key person in the report. And I want to talk about your summary key findings and the things, you know, your data collection and all the things that you've been working so hard on. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Absolutely. As you've seen in the report, it's pretty comprehensive. We wanted to do the, the best job possible since we were starting really from scratch. We didn't have any idea what the problem looked like. So we wanted to um, go back and look at 20 years of homicide data. And um, we had better access to the missing data. So we looked at 10 years of uh, missing persons reports. And um, then we also did a media analysis um, to look at the how these cases were covered. Is there a difference in the way that they're talked about when there is an article? And is there a difference in just the, the number of articles or the presence of them at all? So um, it's very robust. There's a lot to talk about. I'll try to um, keep it to the point. Like our major finding from the homicides was that Indigenous people made up 21% of the homicides during that period in Wyoming, but they make up less than 3% of the population. So that shows that there is a big disparity there. Absolutely. Yes, the, the disproportionate rate of homicides for Indigenous people overall, that's males and females, but the, the female Indigenous homicide rate was six times higher than it was for white females during that time. Six times higher, that's, that's alarming. Absolutely. And we always caution when we talk about these um, statistics that these are only the people who have their death certificate listed as a homicide victim. So it is very likely that this is an undercount of how many is the true number, because there are people who their cause of death is misclassified or um, unknown causes. Perhaps it's put that they were died from exposure or something like that. And so those don't are not counted here. Okay, well, that's a useful caveat to hear. So we know that the number is far greater. And of course, it depends how people are categorized. We always know that with data. And my background's in psychology and forensic and legal psychology. So data and being a geek around data, um, you have to question figures. And also, I'm, how, I'm really pleased you've just let us know that because we know the scale is far greater, which is even more concerning. Well, and also, Emily, if, if I'm not mistaken, you also ran into the issue of not having race identified in a lot of cases. Um, and so we were running into that, that it simply was either misclassified or not 
included at all. And so, I mean, we, we know we're vastly undercounting uh, the instances. And, that, and I think that's something that with the task force, I always cringe when I'm asked for data and numbers and, you know, well, how many people are currently missing? You know, in a state like Wyoming, I think, Emily, you've probably looked at more recently, but I think we have either five or six indigenous people currently listed as missing on our Division of Criminal Investigation site where we, we list missing people. But that's, you know, A, the ones that have been reported, and we can talk about that and why we think that there's a vast undercount, and also ones that were properly identified as, as indigenous in that respect. But it's a snapshot of the issue. And But yeah, uh, what was it that was said, Emily, at our other task forces that statistics lie and liars use statistics or <laughs> you know whatever paraphrase that is it, it's never the full story and really digging deep and understanding that that is key and that's really the work of the task force is not just to, i mean a we do need to have the data and we need to have the numbers but we also have to understand that intangible of measuring unreported crime <laughs> mm. you know and, and finding the ones that we don't know about that we that we should know about. <laughs> and what happens when someone reports someone missing, but someone makes an assumption, maybe they're partying or they're not actually missing and therefore they don't categorize or write it up. And I've had many discussions with professionals about what missing actually means. Yep. You know, that you can be missing of your own volition, but you can be missing and at risk where we know there could be a high chance of trafficking, for example, or, right. you know, someone has vulnerability issues um, it might be that they're autistic and that they're young and we believe they're being groomed. So we would say that they're at risk. They're not just missing. So I think missing is very loaded, even the, the word, isn't it? There probably would be a better way of disaggregating and making it clear. It can encompass a lot of things. And I think especially when we have, I mean, runaways can can fall under that. And I think when you have some youth who are what we call repeat runaways and, you know, I think it, it could be, well, first of all, I always think that's a huge red flag. What are they running from in the first place? I mean, that's, that's a huge red flag. Um, but I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with these vulnerabilities. I think when you look at Indian reservations in the United States, I mean, there's a whole long story of the history of that, but what we have is we have some very isolated, uh, impoverished, very vulnerable individuals who are easy prey. And when you talk about a lot of the offenders and abusers being non-Indigenous, I think there is a there's definitely anecdotal evidence that criminals prey upon individuals on these reservations. I mean, it is literally a hunting ground. It is a, a ripe area to exploit very and multiple vulnerabilities, uh, whether, you know, gender in and of itself is a vulnerability or poverty or uh, substance use issues or family instability. I mean, you name it. These are things that plague some of our tribal nations. And so it's it's a big issue. But but I didn't want to step on the data, but that is definitely um, I think both of you raised some really good points. Yeah, and one thing that I want to mention too, because um, I've heard this come up in a lot of discussions that other states are having also on their missing populations and the idea of the repeat runaways. And we knew that that was a potential issue in Wyoming. So we looked at our NCIC records and were able to match them and see if in that 10 year period of time, people came up multiple times. And was that really accounting for a large percentage? And in our study, two thirds of them were only one time. And there was just 16% that was three or more times. So the majority of people were just the one time. So it is not only an issue of runaways. There's something much bigger that's going on. Yes. And I think the question, well, when you have got somebody who has run away, what are they running from? I certainly know from analysis of cases in the UK, for example, we tend to see domestic violence, child abuse, sexual abuse, these sorts of things of why someone is running away. And I don't know if that's something that you've seen as well. In, in So we still have to ask questions, don't we, about somebody who's running away. And if someone, if the police just write it up as, oh, well, they're a runaway, not an issue for us then they miss what's really going on. And of course, they can be then at risk to others, i.e. being trafficked and being exploited. Is that, so I see you both nodding. Is that something that you see as well in, in your cases in the analysis? 
Yes, nodding probably doesn't go over well on radio, but yes, <laughs> it's definitely something we are seeing. You know, I went through our, so within Wyoming, my office administers the Crime Victims Compensation Fund, and that is a, a fund to assist victims of crime with medical and mental health um, expenses, and just went back over a 20-year period, actually 22-year period, because our database started in 2010, and went through for the self-reported indigenous victims. And the the big thing that I was seeing was child sexual abuse, for sure. And then second only to DV. And so ran the data on that. And that was definitely what we were seeing quite a bit of. So yeah, I, I mean, and I think Emily can speak to that as well. So I do think you have runaways, for lack of a better term, who are fleeing violence in their home and who are being preyed upon. And, and so it's certainly, it's a, it's a multi-layered issue. And again, just I keep harping on vulnerabilities. We also know that when someone is victimized once, that actually increases their vulnerability for being perpetrated upon again. And when you have this already high rate of victimization within this community, I mean, we just have exponential victimization happening uh, within these communities. And, and that's it's very sad and very troubling. And I don't think enough attention is getting paid to that. And so that's why, you know, this is, these conversations are important. And another thing from um, the data that speaks to that is beyond seeing that there is a disproportionate rate of Indigenous people being missing in Wyoming, the majority are juvenile, the majority are female, but also we looked at the length of time that they were missing in the system. So, um, you know, again, it's an undercount because this is according to when it was reported. And we know a lot of people aren't reported immediately. But of those um, indigenous people, they were missing for longer periods of time than were their white counterparts. And so we know that the longer that someone is missing, the higher their vulnerabilities are, the more likely it is that they can come into contact with a trafficker. So yes, our, the data reflects that too. Yes. And the secondary victimization, as we know, when you are vulnerable, you then may be offered pseudo caring type things. So, you know, I'll buy you a drink or I'll buy you something to eat or here's a mobile phone, a cell phone or, you know, and on the on the basis of being seen as nice, but actually that's how a lot of traffickers start to groom and start to create rapport. And again, it's that trust bond that again, victims don't always know that that's grooming and they're going to be exploited. And then what happens next? You know, they may just think that they're having sex with men, but they're being passed around and they're being groomed for that. And then, of course, they can be transported across different jurisdictions. So, and they may not have any identity. So, once you start to get into that, that web, it's very difficult to get out of it. But of course, not everybody knows about trafficking or people think it's a particular type of person who might be trafficked. And you mentioned that actually your work, you both started on the trafficking. Can you say a little bit about that, of that first step that you took around trafficking and just in terms of data collection? I know, uh, you know, the geek in me just wants to know a little bit about um, some of the challenges around data collection. Yeah, sure. So Wyoming has the dubious distinction of being the very last state in the nation to pass state level human trafficking legislation. So we were 50th in the country. But the silver lining to that is we had 49 other states and, and territories to look at their laws. And so we have actually very comprehensive level state level legislation. But with that same kind of thing, once you um, create a law and you need to create understanding around that, we, we needed to go out and train law enforcement. But we also needed to wrap our arms around what that looked like in our state, what the numbers were, and what the understanding of this new concept, as it were, in 2013 for Wyoming and, and that's why we engaged uh, Dr. Grant. And she had she had a lot of fun. She can talk about what she did for her survey. For the food research. Yeah, oh, her research, her deep level research. She can talk about that. Go on, Emily, you've got to jump in now. Sure, yes. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, how do you measure the unmeasurable? You know, how do you find something that is, you know, inherently hidden, like human trafficking victims? So um, together with the research team, you know, we brainstormed how how could we do this? So um, I embarked on a road trip around Wyoming to um, talk in all, you know, five areas of the state with law enforcement, social service providers, truck stop employees, ladies that worked at gentlemen's clubs, um, all over the place and asking them, what do you know about human trafficking? You know, some like uh, red flags. Can you recognize what these are? What would you do? Who would you call? Have you ever seen this? And also look, you know, at whatever administrative data that we had that could somehow be similar, um, you know, associated crimes to human trafficking to kind of look at this picture of this is where we are. And in 2013, we saw that a lot of people had heard of it, had kind of a, a movie media, a popular image of, you know, a, a girl from a foreign country who is, you know, bound and in the back of a van, not really sure who they would call. But the, the really neat thing is that the task force was developed. People started doing a lot of education. All of these things had happened. And we repeated this study with the same methods. I went on my road trip again. <laughs> in um, like 2018, 2019. And this time, people were so much, uh, had way deeper understandings of what it is. People would tell me, I understand now, looking back on these cases, that what I was looking at was human trafficking, but I didn't have the words at that time. And um, we've, we've made a ton of progress in the state on awareness of human trafficking. Well, and even just the term, I mean, I can say, you know, I started in victim services in the late 90s and had, and, and Laura, I don't know how long you've been in it, but, you know, that was not a word. Human trafficking was not a word that we used. We certainly, and I remember probably even as late as 2011, going to a training where I, a, a sexual assault training where I finally had the aha moment of pimp, prostitute, human traffic. You know, I mean, I, I just didn't fully understand what we were talking about. Um, and then of course, human trafficking encompasses more than just domestic sex trade and, and, and whatnot. It is obviously a vast array of, of exploitation, but someone who prides themselves on having studied, you know, criminology and, and victim studies, and I have a master's degree in sociology and, and came from, yeah, I had never heard the term human trafficking until I came into this position in 2011 and then quickly realized we were the one state that didn't have any laws on it. So we needed to fix that. But Emily glosses over the fact that she has been in some of the seediest, diviest bars in the state of Wyoming. And that was what I was giving her a hard time about as part of this study, because that's where you're going to find it, right? Yeah, that's where you'll see exploitation. Absolutely. Well, and I talk with my colleagues about, you know, the different types of qualitative research and, you know, the easy things like focus groups and getting uh, the meaning of the words that people are saying, but then how you also have to look at body language. And my best example is during the human trafficking data collection, a woman that I was talking to didn't want to talk audibly, but she would use like eye signals and, you know, slight facial movements and things like that. <laughs> to answer my questions. And so um, it's been a great example to train colleagues on, you know, looking at the full, the full context of things. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. 
and they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Yeah, I mean, presumably people said locally it's not a problem here. They they probably thought it happened elsewhere but didn't happen here. Was that some of the, the notions? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I'm sure Emily encountered that, but we encountered that with the legislation, trying to get legislators to, to understand that this can be homegrown, that this is happening in our backyard. And I, I actually had to back off of that because they were very resistant to that notion that a young woman, man, woman, boy could be trafficked in their own home. Uh, although we were seeing cases like that where, you know, parents were selling children for drugs and, and you know, our, our state had a very big issue with methamphetamine. And, and anyway, but I couldn't get them to fully, because we don't want to think about these things happening. And, and Wyoming being a very rural, small state. We do, we talk about it having one big main street. Everybody knows everybody. And so we didn't really want to conceptualize it that way. So I did have to say, well, okay, but we can acknowledge that we have a a very large interstate uh, across east, west nation, I-80, north, south, I-25, and the northern part of our state, I-90, very vast interstate commerce coming through. If you don't believe it's starting here, you at least acknowledge it's coming through here. And that's really how we had to start. And I'm sure Emily came across the same thing as people not understanding it and not willing to dive deep enough to acknowledge that that this could be happening underneath our very nose. And it was all at all different levels too, you know, talking to a provider of a, you know, family owned hotel and I've lived in Wyoming my whole life. Things like that don't happen here. That's why I don't live in a big city. You know, people love the small feel and um, that it's safe. And so if you come at them with, you know, differing information, it's hard for them to digest. But then also law enforcement would say, yeah, we've had this training. Someone came up from the big city. And honestly, my guys just tuned out because that's not what we have here. You know, so understanding where the people are coming from and seeing that we need to really tailor things and tailor the the messaging and the education that we provide to be very state specific is the way to reach them. Absolutely. Locally owned. Locally owned. I used to find that in the UK, you know, whenever I was, and I used to work nationally, so I'd travel a lot and people say, oh yeah, but we understand that's London or it doesn't happen here. This is X. We're different. So that wouldn't work here or and then, you know, I would always go out, gather my community intelligence and talk to people on the ground. And of course, it happens everywhere. It's just people don't understand necessarily what they're seeing. Equally, someone who is a victim, they don't necessarily have the language for what it is either, do they? And whether they communicate through body language or but they don't have the fancy words that now we dress all things up, like even child sexual exploitation, you know, these terms that are kind of emperor's new clothes. You know, we know what these things are. We don't, we see different manifestations of it. And of course, the people doing it get cleverer at what they do too. But if they're grooming and they're manipulative, you know, the biggest manipulation and deception is that the victim doesn't even know that they're being victimized. And then they defend whatever it is that's happening, the coercion and the manipulation. And I I was interested just going back to the report, I was really interested to see the um, graph and the statistic about 35% of females zero to 17 years of, of age, that they were statistically overrepresented when you compared them to the boys. So for me, it's what's happening to the young girls, zero to 17. I, I don't know if you had a sense of of that, of those particular cases, but that for me was sort of the red hotspot that I would be asking more questions of. And my follow-up question to that, just whilst you're thinking, is are there any hot spots that you found, i.e. geographic hotspots, 
that you know certain things are going on and therefore, and you don't necessarily even need to name them. It's helpful, I think, if you do, because people listen to the podcast and they can think about things geographically. But are there certain themes and areas coming up as well? The big thing is, as we're seeing crime rate on Indian reservations is exponentially higher than elsewhere. But one thing that the study did illuminate, and Emily can talk about that, is that they had victims from all, so Wyoming has 23 counties, and I believe we had victims from 22 out of the 23 counties. So we do think of this movement, missing and murdered Indigenous people by virtue of the eye of Indigenous. We think this is a tribal issue. Maybe this is just happening on the reservation, but it's not. But it's definitely centered around there. Um, because again, I go back to that that notion of having this vulnerable population that are contained in this one location, but it obviously they're taken off the reservation or they go off the reservation and have less support because they've only ever known, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But Emily can talk about more about what the data revealed. Sure. So as Karen mentioned, this whole report took place during the pandemic. So like we started it, I think we had our first meeting in January, got some stuff set up and ready to go in February and then the pandemic hit. So we had planned to get a lot more contextual information, talking with families, talking with communities to give some more information to these numbers that we're seeing from the NCIC reports on missing people. All of that was squashed. Um, the pandemic impacted the reservation disproportionately and uh, they weren't having any kind of in-person meetings and things like that. So we were reduced to phone calls and Zoom interviews and um, didn't get as much information as we would like. So I can't tell you the specifics about the uh, missing females within that age group that you asked about. But yes, it is 22 out of the 23 counties. The only one that did not have anyone indigenous missing during that time period was our Niobrara County, which is our very smallest one. And is often the, the outlier. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's all over the state. So, you know, about 75 or 80% of the indigenous population lives um, on the reservation or, you know, very close to it in the surrounding counties. So that is where a lot of the efforts are focused, but it is a statewide issue. Well, and to go back to that whole notion that you were talking about, well, that's a London thing, or, you know, this is a big city thing. My argument, and one of the things that we did is is to counter what Emily was saying, is instead of bringing in nation, you know, national speakers or speakers up from Denver, is I spent most of 2013, 14, 15 going around myself and bringing other practitioners from our state to talk to these to try to get them to understand. But my big thing was, all right, yeah, there's a big city, but it looks different. And gosh, wouldn't it be a good place to hide in the open in a really remote rural area? I mean, and so I was trying to let them know that, especially with passing the law, we certainly didn't want to be the one state that was somehow like a state level safe haven for trafficking uh, because we don't have state level laws. Obviously, a lot of this does go through uh, federal jurisdiction. And we can, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, because if someone is being trafficked through our state and interdicted in our state, most of our cases do go federal. But, you know, letting them know that, gosh, when you have a, a really small rural community, and you have this extraction, oil industry, oil and gas or whatever, you know, these man camps that we have in our state where traffickers will bring women in to, I mean, in these tremendously remote areas. You know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what trafficking looks like in Wyoming. And that really, I think, moved the needle a lot. But just sorry to take it back to the trafficking. But the same, it's the same issue. You have a very remote reservation that doesn't, I mean, there are many people living without telephone service. I mean, there are vast areas of our state without cell phone coverage, and it's very easy to get lost out there, you know, in the wilderness. And, you know, in fact, one of the cases we've talked about, uh, Jade Wagon, was found in the middle of nowhere, hidden amongst the sagebrush. In fact, the officer who'd gone out to search for her, she'd been missing for several weeks at that point, tripped over her in the snow. This would have would have been two years ago last month. You know, I mean, for your listeners who don't know, Google Wyoming, <laughs> Google our population, Google our landmass, 
and get some idea of the topography. We're talking about a very rough rural environment out there and a lot of stuff can go undetected. And so that's why the, both of these task forces were so important to raise awareness that this stuff does happen in all in rural America, in urban cities. And specifically with the Missing and Murder Task Force, we know from this report that these victims are preyed upon at a much higher rate than their white counterparts, and we need to pay attention. Absolutely. I think I read somewhere that there were six police officers on patrol for that 2.2 million acres. So just to give people an understanding of scale and resource, particularly in terms of policing. And jurisdiction is a major issue, isn't it? I mean, it's another vulnerability. We think about geography and isolation as well. But was it a coincidence that someone then trips over her her body when areas have been searched before? And I think with Jade's case, well, let's say a little bit about Jade, because her mother, her mother, Nicole Wagon, I just can't believe that she's had two daughters who've been killed. I mean, what are the chances of that? But then when I look at the statistics for the area, I think, well, it's not that unheard of in a way, given how many women experience abuse and violence. But I can't even imagine what Nicole has gone through because her, and I'm not going to use the word lost, because both daughters, it, it looks, she, well, she believes they've both been murdered and she is raising the profile, isn't she? And she wants more eyes and ears to try and help find out who killed both both daughters. Her older sister was Jocelyn and she was shot dead when she was 30, along with her fiance, Rudy, in January 2019. And then it's a year later when 23-year-old Jade was reported missing by her mother on January the 2nd. What what do you know about, uh, let's start with Jade, first of all, because the FBI did get involved, didn't they? And, and they quickly ruled that her death was accidental due to hypothermia and drug intoxication. But her mother really believes that she was killed, doesn't she? So, yeah, um, to kind of bring it full circle, Nicole Wagon is is sadly who I've often referred to as the, as the poster mother for missing and murdered. Um, and we can talk about both. But yes, Jade Wagon was one of those cases. She was a young mother. She has two children. And Jade had had a history of victimization herself. She'd been in a domestically violent relationship with her children's father. And Jade had it was one of those who had gone missing before and always seemed to turn up with various explanations. Jade did have some substance use issues, but I think you know, a lot of that, what we see is a coping mechanism, maybe dealing with some of the stuff that was going on in her life. What was really poignant about Jade's case was that the family realized that on January 5th, when they were preparing to have the one-year memorial for Jocelyn's homicide, which at that time was still unsolved, in fact, was only solved this past December, by the way. And so we were going on three years that uh, Jocelyn and Rudy's homicides had gone unsolved. But at any rate, it was at a, a memorial event one year later that the family realized that Jade was missing because they they knew she wouldn't miss this. Um, she was very close to Jocelyn and Jocelyn's death affected her greatly as, as it did Nicole's three other daughters. And so uh, Nicole is a mother of five daughters. The reason Jade's case is so compelling because it falls under that category that we keep seeing of missing and then found deceased. And, and as you said, ruled uh, death by exposure to the elements, hypothermia, and acute meth intoxication. But going back to her body being found because the officer looking for her essentially tripped over her amongst the knee-high sagebrush in the snow was, how did she get there? She was miles from any road. She had been in a car with other individuals who claimed that Jade got out of the car and just took off. Well, people don't just do that regardless of their state of impairment, especially in Wyoming in January. Um, Again, Google our average temp. Right now, we're having a cold snap. I think it's three degrees here. And I'm in the capital city, which is lower elevation and warmer than parts of where the reservation is. But you know, it's just, it, it's almost, I, I mean, I hate to be so cliche to use the movie Wind River as an example, but of course that was a, a, a motion picture that was fictitiously based, but very, rings very true, but based on our, on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. 
similar case of a young woman who was found miles from nowhere. She'd been running barefoot through the snow. You know, well, how did she get there? She was running from something. Jade, as, as we said, Jade's death was not uh, ruled a homicide and her mother does not agree with those findings. And we, that lament is what we see so many times over amongst indigenous families of these young women who've gone missing and then are found deceased with no real explanation and their deaths are, are, you know, ruled hypothermia or exposure or accidental drowning or whatever it may be. It's like, well, how did they get there? You don't jump out of a car and run for miles from nothing. So I mean, I realize I've, that's a lot of information to digest, but that is, that's Jade Wagon's story and her mother, Nicole will not rest and good for Nicole. I don't know. Nicole is one of the strongest women I've ever met in my life. And I've become very, very close to her um, throughout this. Cause of course we first met when, when Jocelyn was, was killed back in January of, of 2019. And again, recently we've had four individuals who've been, uh, arrested and charged with the double homicide of, of Jocelyn and Rudy. And so right now, as we speak, you, Nicole is reliving this and, and going through all of this again and getting more details on what happened to her daughter while still trying to deal with what she feels is unresolved with Jade. So I, I realize that's a lot to unpack, but but these are what these families have to deal with. And and Nicole is, again, a very, very strong woman, and she is determined to make sure that that her daughters receive justice. Well, anything I can do to help her, if you can extend an invitation, if she wants to talk to me on Crime Analyst, I'd be very happy to <laughs> to talk with her and spread the word. Because we know yeah. these cases don't get media coverage, right? There can still be a mom or a, a sister trying to advocate for your loved one, but that doesn't mean to say the media will pick up these cases. And we know they're even less likely to if it's a female victim. That's what your report showed, wasn't it, Emily? Yes, that was our, our third part of the report is looking at the media coverage that cases received. And we found that only 30% of the indigenous homicide victims that we found through searching vital statistics records ever had a newspaper article about them. So 70% did not. I'm sorry, I misspoke. That's 30% of indigenous homicide victims overall <laughs> is only 18% of the female victims. But so besides like not even getting an article, when they did have an article, the words that were used um, were different than they were for white victims. So we talk about character framing, like negative character framing would be talking about negative details of your life that aren't really part of the situation at hand. So you've been homeless before, you've been known to have a drug problem, or you're a single mom, or vagrant or these kinds of words. Positive character framing is they went to church every Sunday. They were loved in their community and by their family, things like that. We saw um, negative character framing used when talking about indigenous victims, where we usually saw positive character framing when talking about the white victims. Yes. And the victim blaming, I think, tends to happen across the board, but it sounds like it's even more compounded if you're lucky enough, of course, to get an article written. And we know how important the media is to solving cases like this. So I don't know if either of you have watched Black and Missing on HBO, which is a brilliant docu-series. Um, it's definitely worth a, a watch, but hearing from families and the more we can give them the microphone, the better, because we know with social media and so on, just putting someone's face out there, you never know who might have seen something and not realized it was relevant. And I think also your report showed about violent language being used. So language being used very differently to characterize and, and to frame somebody, which says somebody's worth more than someone else. So again, for my listeners, I, I give them homework at times, you know, to look at newspapers and to have a critical eye when they see a headline and look at who's written it. Is it a male or is it a female? Because we often see sexism and a gender bias when women are being characterized or described and we often see victim blame. But these cases just don't really get the attention. And I think it was Natalie Wilson in Black and Missing who said, Lots of people know, particularly in America, the, the homicide rate is high, but name me three black women 
who have gone missing or who've been killed in the last year go. And she just says that. And you can see that most people, certainly who I've watched it with, they're kind of struggling to think about, you know, and people say, well, Natalie Holloway, or in each case, they talk about those that have had maximum exposure in the media, but primarily white. So... We have to change this, and that's why it was important to talk to you today. And there's one other case I was hoping we might just mention, because, it, again, it's unsolved, which is Dawn Michelle Day. Do, do one of you just want to start off talking or saying a little bit about Dawn Michelle Day, who was 28 years old and, and found dead? You never know who might know something or hear something. So, And I'll put a picture of, of her up as well when I post on social media. Sure. You know, so when I was talking about how in um, July and August of 2019, when we got the task force started, that we just had this tremendous response and people showing up. One of those people was was Greg Day. And Greg Day is Dawn's father. And her death was in 2012. So we're, you know, 10 years, eight, eight at the time, years later, he was very passionate, attended both meetings, and is still very involved, and is just adamant that there's more to the story. In Dawn's case, she was also in a domestic violence relationship. And in fact, earlier in the week that she died, had, I believe, been in the hospital with uh, injuries related to a very violent altercation with her domestic partner. In Dawn's case, she was never missing. Uh, Well, she was for a period of time, very short period of time, but she was found floating in in the river and uh, her death was ruled an accidental drowning. Although I was told by the FBI advocate that there was no water in her lungs, (laughs) Um, but people saw her. I mean, people saw her body and they they retrieved her body, but they don't know how she got in there or what happened or et cetera. And it was kind of one of those, like, you know, the family was told, well, she, she drowned. That's not a satisfactory answer to any of this, especially when you when you have um, alleged. And again, a lot of this, you know, I'm getting from the family, and and I ha- certainly haven't read the police reports. I don't have access to that, or I don't have a need to have access to that. You know, aren't lining up. But that's certainly one of those cases where it's like, well, that that's not enough to just, you know, well, she she drowned accidentally. We're we're not putting any more time and resources into this. But that's what happened. Hmm. And the family is very much unsatisfied with that answer and feels that there is systemic racism that went into sort of writing off Don's death as just, you know, this accidental drowning, you know, uh, mysterious death. You know, the word homicide isn't used in any official capacity, but we we know all these things about other victimization that, that had occurred. And it just seems very random, you know, and I, you know, I'm not the expert. This is certainly more your field, Laura. I don't know how you drown without having water in your lungs, but what do I know? You know, she was found in a body of water. Yes. But yes, her, her family is very much involved in the task force because they are, you know, another one of those cases where they're like, I, I get that no one's, op- her case is not considered open. No one is looking into Don's case, but the family will not rest. And I, uh, kudos to them for being tenacious and being involved. And, and I know uh, Dr. Grant was able to interview them and the family and that there are quotes and they just feel that that there was an injustice done in their daughter's death. Did you want to add to that, Emily, or come in? I don't really have anything more to add to that, I don't think. But um, I guess I will say that the thing that comes to mind when we talk about this case, especially the day case, is the lack of trust in law enforcement and coroners and just how incredibly important that can be when talking with families and when tragedy strikes like this, you know, and if you don't have those relationships, if there's been, you know, bad things that have went on in the community before, if there's reasons that that trust has been broken, it's just not good. And honestly, the Dawn Day case and the skepticism that the the tribe and the family has probably also, you know, feeds into Nicole Wagon's mistrust. You know, they're both families that feel that that they didn't receive an acceptable answer to what happened to their daughters. And and the comment that I have heard from the FBI who are stationed here and the former Wind River Indian chief of police had said is, you know, we have a lot of missing, not so much missing and, the, and murdered, he goes, but we definitely have a lot of missing and found dead. Okay. Um, the two probably aren't unrelated. Um mm. You know, and so it was a very sort of 
I mean, I think he was looking at the data, you know, they go missing and then we find them dead or, you know, we find them dead and it turns out they were missing, but they were never reported. Um, and we have that too, but that's exactly what Emily's getting at where it's, it's lack of trust, these families, and that's learned through experience. Um, and we talk about that systemic bias and how important language is. We, I mean, also part of the report was that these articles, even when they were written, were usually after the death. And so completely forestalling that ability of people listening or people watching or people reading from like having eyes and ears on the situation and trying to help. I think the biggest example recently is the Gabby Petito case. Her her admitted, you know, self-published profile and social media. You know, she was on social media long before her death, but so she was a face and there were images that were easily, you know, captured and, and put on the news station and we could all see her smiling faces and all the various national parks that she was at. But, you know, that leverage, when, when you think of how quickly her family reported her missing September 11th and she was found um, September 19th, that was breakneck speed compared to the Day family who, you know, were going on a decade and other families who were 20, 30 years waiting for answers. And that just speaks to how quickly, because we know in, in the Petito case that there were people who said, you know what, I saw that van. You know, I was here because, pe because people had eyes and ears. And I think the saddest statement that I ever heard was from uh, a surviving sister of, of a, a young woman who went, who was found dead is, if I ever go missing, she was an indigenous woman. She said, if I ever go missing, tell them, I, you know, I'm native, but I'm wearing, you know, blue contacts and a blonde wig. So maybe they'll go look for me. That's a sad statement. And that boils absolutely down to race. I just got shivers with you saying that, you know, th that is just so instructive about the zeitgeist, about how people and women in particular feel. And yes, trust and confidence takes time to, to build. And it sounds like you need some really good advocates working locally and, you know, having been former law enforcement, but also an advocate and, you know, you have to keep asking questions and it's not always easy for a family to do that. When you're grieving, when you're in chaos, you can't always have a voice that is clear and rational and you need someone to do that for you. And it sounds like the, that that's what's required. And that, I think that was one of your recommendations in your report as well, to have advocates, to start to raise awareness, but also be the voice of, to get these stories out proactively so that people can say, because there are times, the 72-hour window, where someone could still be alive and you need to, the clock is ticking. You need to be able to mobilize the resources that are there to find them. And it just seems to me that there's some really important work for you all to do there in any way I can assist, whether it's getting the word out with cases or uh, behind the scenes, then please know that I'm a friend who um, is happy to help because really, it's really important work you're doing. And I want to thank you for your, for your time and what you're doing. Thank you. We will take all the allies we can get because that is what it takes. It takes more people. It, take, it takes well-trained advocates working with these families. So yes, thank you. Thank you. And I, again, just the attention that, that the task force and, and Dr. Grant's report has received has been overwhelming and so positive. And um, if we can move the needle on this epidemic, that is amazing. So thank you. And thank you to your listeners. What an interesting and alarming conversation. On Crime Analyst, I want to spotlight the who, the what, the where, the when, the how and the why, and the patterns and the trends, and give a voice to the voiceless. It's clear to me that this is a crisis, and one that needs everybody's attention. And it's great that President Biden has declared that this is one of his priorities. For me, what jumped out immediately when I read the Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Statewide Report in Wyoming was girls... Girls aged 0 to 17, they were 35% of the Indigenous homicide victims compared to 13% who were boys. Now, both are alarming, but that 35% is disproportionate, particularly in the context that the homicide rate for Indigenous females is 6.4 times higher than the homicide rate for white females. This warrants urgent further investigation to find out exactly what's going on. Are the girls, for example, being killed inside the home? 
or are they being targeted and killed outside the home? These are really important questions to start off with and you have to drill down into exactly what's happening. Now you can read the full report. The link is in the show notes, along with some of the other great links to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Centre and also the film Somebody's Daughter. So please educate yourself, crime analysts, and get involved. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Adam Gross. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>